0: Welcome back to Bofa Talks. I'm your host, Raphael. Today we have two guests, Shai Pora and Ilsa Flores. They're both neuroscientists currently pursuing a doctorate at USC. Thank Welcome you. to the show. As you guys might, might have seen the Instagram post, um, Ilsa and Shai are both here to talk to us about neuroscience and specifically how the to exercise and sleep. So um, I think we should just get right into it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who wants to go first, but my first question for you guys would be: How does the teenage brain differ from a fully developed adult brain?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so, I think to first talk about how the teenage brain and the adult brain are different, you have to t- you have to talk about its development. Um, so the brain is done physically growing. So it's the largest it'll be in early adolescence. For girls, it's usually around 11 years old. For boys, it's around 14. But just because it's done growing physically doesn't mean that it's done maturing. So it continues to mature. um, And really what's most notable is that the prefrontal cortex, or so the front side of the brain um, is underdeveloped in adolescence. And you actually don't develop a full uh, prefrontal cortex until your 20s or your mid-20s. And that part of the brain is involved in things like emotional regulation, impulsivity, decision-making, and reasoning. Um, And it's why all these changes that happen at this time might also explain um, a lot of psychiatric illnesses that manifest during this time. So if you think about... Uh, depression and anxiety, um, because the brain is going through so much during these years. uh, This is usually when symptoms for these kinds of illnesses start to manifest. Um, Yeah, and so in that sense, I think that's the biggest difference between the teenage brain and the adult brain. Your PFC, or the prefrontal cortex, is underdeveloped. Um, and that usually leads to a lot of risk-taking and very impulsive behavior. So, like, you know, when you think about the quintessential teenager, you think about someone who doesn't make great decisions, who makes very impulsive decisions, um, and who takes a lot of risks. And that's <laughs> largely due because um, because of this underdeveloped PFC. But also because regions of the brain... Um, that are involved in emotional processing, such as the amygdala or in rewarding, uh, yeah, parts of the ring that are involved in reward, such as the limbic regions, um, those are fully developed as a teenager. And that's why risk-taking is so common because you get, I guess, a lot of pleasure from um, doing crazy things as a teenager and you don't have that PFC kind of you know putting the brakes and making you think okay like is this a good decision or not you just go straight for the crazy
0: yeah that's kind of like a yeah formula for disaster because it's like your brain can get all the pleasure but you still can't make all the proper choices and decisions i i didn't know that your brain was fully developed like fully grown once you're 14 around there for guys yeah i didn't know that I thought your brain kept growing until you were like twenty. Yeah, no.
1: I it's only about three pounds, Interesting. I think, the brain, once it's fully grown.
0: It's a lot smaller than
1: Yeah, it's a lot smaller. You think.
0: Yeah, I've only seen I've only seen a mouse's brain and I was it was a lot smaller. <laughs> if you were there, it was a yeah, lot smaller than I thought. A little bit smaller
2: than
0: humans. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> So, with those differences aside, um, I guess it only makes sense that let's say alcohol and drugs affect the developing brain differently than an adult brain. So, how how does let's say alcohol or drugs affect right? A so, when brain?
1: you're talking about the teenage brain and drug use, you have to consider the fact that your brain is still under construction, right? So, and and drugs usually affect. Uh, the brainstem, the limbic system, and the cerebral cortex. And the brainstem is in charge of all of the vital functions. So breathing, uh, circulation, digesting food. It also links your brain to the spinal cord, which is what runs down your back and connects your body to your brain. Um, The limbic system links together a bunch of brain structures that control our emotional responses, such as pleasure, like when you eat chocolate or you kiss someone. Um, And the good feelings motivate us to repeat the behavior, which can be good because things like eating and love are critical to our lives. And the cerebral cortex is the outer part of the brain. Um, In humans, it's so big that it makes up about three fourths of the entire brain. And it's divided into the four areas called called lobes. And so the front part, is the part that I mentioned earlier, the prefrontal cortex. And then you have like the top part and that's the parietal. The section by your ears is called temporal and the section in the back is called occipital. Um, And so, like I said, the front part, the frontal cortex is involved in thinking and planning, solving problems and making decisions. And so drugs really have an impact on these three uh, regions, the brainstem, limbic system, and the cerebral cortex. And if we think about the three most commonly used drugs uh, for teens, alcohol, cannabis, and nicotine, they can all have severe effects because your brain is still under construction, right? So if you think about alcohol, um, it has detrimental effects to brain development, brain functioning, and neuropsychological performance. So you see deficits in memory, attention span, and information processing, even after a period of abstinence. Um,
0: Is this like large amounts of alcohol or like regular casual use? Like how much do you have to drink for it to like start um, affecting you? Yeah. Just asking. (laughs) I think think as a team...
1: (laughs) That too. But I think if we're talking specifically of adolescent brains, it's best to just hold off on any substance use until your brain is more developed or far along its development, um, because the earlier that you try these drugs, um, it can have.
0: And these are these are lifelong so effects, for right? These things... yeah. Not so grow for out substances
1: like alcohol and nicotine, those seem to have long-term. Uh, lasting effects um, the jury's still out on cannabis and the long-term effects it has on the developing brain, but it's also not great like some research does show that there are long-term effects um, and it's associated with, associated with alterations in the structure of the prefrontal and the temporal brain regions um, and with functional alterations in the parietal and a part of the brain that processes. Uh, Pleasure, And some possible long-term effects for for all of these drugs, if you use them as a teen, you can have cognitive impairments. So you'll have issues with memory and attention, Um, and you can have some psychiatric symptoms as well. So you can have increased depression and anxiety, Um, and you also have a higher risk of developing dependence or addiction to these drugs if you use them as a teenager versus using them as an adult. Um, So, it compared to adults, if if, let's say an adult never tried these drugs as a teenager and waits until they're thirty, which is rare, right? But like you know, fully formed adult brain. um, If they were, let's say, to try cannabis, um, some studies show that within four to eight weeks of abstaining from using cannabis they they can recover cognitively and so for adults and for the fully formed brain it seems to be that the long term effects at least for cannabis are temporary or are or they can recover from them with a period of abstinence but with teens you have a similar effect in terms of you know if you use cannabis you have deficits in memory attention span and information processing but these effects can last even after a month Of being abstinent from using cannabis
2: also if you have predisposition to schizophrenia cannabis Mm -hmm. can exasperate those conditions
0: no because a lot of i know around school a lot of teens are like oh no it helps me with like uh, you know people that like say they have depression or like mental issues or it just makes them happier. But I guess in reality it might be making it worse for some people.
1: Yeah, that could be the case. And I mean, there's also, you know, at least with cannabis, it's relatively new in terms of research and, and the findings that we have. Um, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done with cannabis specifically, um, and with the brain in general. We're always learning something new every day and there's always new studies being published every day. Um, but there's always, you know, like the thought of, okay, well, were you depressed before? And then that's why you started using these drugs? Or did the drugs contribute to the depression and anxiety that you had? Um,
0: and does is alcohol show similar effects to nicotine and cannabis? Or is there one that's worse than the other?
2: Alcohol is definitely worse. Yeah. And nicotine itself is not bad. It's... All the toxins and cigarettes and tobacco.
0: So, like, like the um, those jewels and those vape things. Those are like super addictive and stuff, but are they not like killing your lungs like cigarettes?
2: So those depends on two things. One, if you're purchasing them legally or you know off the street, off the street you don't know what kind of chemicals people are putting in them to build these cartridges, and that can lead to death, which we've seen, I don't know, a few months ago, right before COVID, everyone was freaking out because people were dying from lung poisoning or something. Um, I think it was like an excess of vitamin E, the cartridges, Um, but a lot of those were not properly regulated. Um, So they were not store-bought and they were illegally sold. But there's still a lot of microparticles in vapes and in you know, these electronic cigarettes that can definitely reach through your lungs and cross blood brain barriers to the brain. Um, and if you look up literally just Google micro pollution um, in the brain, you'll see many studies popping up now in news articles showing that there's a strong link to cognitive impairment all the way to Alzheimer's disease in air pollution Um, so there's no safe smoke even with cannabis the smoke itself is irritating your lungs even though the product is much less toxic
0: yeah so inhaling smoke is never never good for your lungs Mm -hmm. no matter what it is as far as i'm aware interesting and this uh, as well like the nicotine i think the nicotine is the addictive thing no yes yeah so uh, if you get like too addicted that's also like your body builds a dependency on that yeah like that be rough to like get rid
1: of and stuff yeah interesting
2: similar to coffee if you build a caffeine addiction you know it's difficult to go a day without having caffeine at that point without feeling a headache or some kind of migraine
0: is coffee also something bad like that for teens or is it not doesn't when have you
2: talk way. about
0: sleep yes back for sleep um, don't worry shy. we're getting there shy. we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. nice yeah. So, so for all the teens listening don't be don't do drugs or anything like that and so at least until you're i mean don't do them ever but <laughs> at least wait until you're fully your brain is fully mature which is when when you're 25 you said
1: it varies yeah but I would say maybe, like, mid-20s, early 20s to mid-20s.
2: Wow. Good, good yeah. luck in college. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I
0: find it so weird that you're saying how, like, teens, I mean, know I already, like, you know, heard of this. My mom's always like, oh, you think you're Superman and stuff. Cause teens have, like, you know, the reputation of being crazy. But, like, you, as a teenager, you don't recognize it. You don't, like, feel it yourself. But... I guess once you, like, get older and you look back, you're like, oh, I I did have those qualities.
1: Yeah, yeah, even for myself, like, I'm in my mid-20s now, and the way I processed emotion was very different when I was 18 versus now. Like, I was very quick to, like, react emotionally to a lot of situations, and now it's a lot easier for me to just pause and just be like, all right, do I need to react? Is this necessary and it's so weird to think about like how i was even just a few years back um so it, it does change and you and you do notice it at least i noticed it in myself
0: yeah you see the change in yourself well i, I want to see i want to look back and hear this podcast and be like wow that was, that was a lot different so i guess um moving on from the drugs and alcohol exercise I guess we can merge those two together. Do you think exercise can like help with the effects of that? If you have like long-term, long-term damage from let's say alcohol, what does exercise help with that?
1: Yeah. So exercise um, is great for the brain. It's great for the body and it's great for the brain uh, largely because it, is involved, or I guess contributes to activity-dependent neuroplasticity, which is just a fancy way of saying that you're able to build more connections or stronger connections between the neurons in your brain. Um, It's really helpful in injured brains. So if we're talking about like uh, people who have neurological disorders, such as Parkinson's disease um, or other motor disorders, exercise tends to help Uh, people with these disorders, their symptoms improve, both cognitive symptoms. um, So their memory and their executive functioning improve, and their motor symptoms improve as well. And I'm not sure um, how exercise would help people who are recovering from substance use, but that would be interesting to look into, actually. Um, But yeah, exercise for everyone is great. Uh, Greater aerobic fitness is um, associated with larger prefrontal cortex. So that region of your brain, remember, that um, is involved in reasoning. It's also involved, uh, aerobic thickness is also associated with a larger precuneus and occipital lobe. And the precuneus is a part of the brain that's like on the inside surface. Um, and that's considered the seat of self-awareness and mental imagery. Um, and the occipital lobe is involved in, in visual processing. Um, and high fitness is also associated with, uh, better executive functioning and, uh, memory functioning. And this has been studied in teenagers. And so they, teenagers who are more, um, fit can learn new tasks more readily, um, and that's Thought to be because um, exercise also helps increase growth factors in the brain. Help improve and develop new connections between neurons. Um,
0: so if you exercise more, you can, like, have better memory and stuff. You mentioned Alzheimer. So.
1: Well, Parkinson's.
0: Oh, par- Parkinson's. Um, That's when you like, your body shakes a lot, right? When you exercise, it calms that down? Or what does that do with it?
1: Yeah. Um, So Parkinson's is a motor disorder. Um, It also has cognitive symptoms. um, And the exercise has been shown to help patients improve on performance in cognitive tasks specifically executive functioning and with Parkinson's it's very complicated (laughs) um but the portion of the brain that's responsible for movement is isn't working well in Parkinson's um it in Parkinson's you have a decreased amount of dopamine production. And dopamine is what people consider like the happy molecule, but it's also very important for movement. And so dopamine is decreased in brains that have Parkinson's. And this decrease simply put, like you said, leads to shakiness, right? Or leads to a slow slowness of movement um, or a sort of rigidity. And if you exercise and you have Parkinson's, then you increase the receptors for this dopamine. Um, so the receptors would be like on on the neurons right at the ends of the neurons. Um, you increase these receptors. so the little dopamine that is in the brain, you know it's it's a smaller amount than in a healthier brain, but because you're increasing the receptors then. You're more likely it, to
0: like gets received
1: better. Yeah. Oh. Um, and that's what yeah, that's what exercise helps with, I guess, in Parkinson's. And um yeah, it helps it helps. It's it's used as an additional treatment, I guess, for people with Parkinson's. It's not standalone for sure. They have to take L DOPA and I guess other medication that their doctor prescribes, but now um, it's common for people with Parkinson's to also be told to start exercising more.
0: Oh. And, like, uh, are there certain types of exercise help more? Is it more like cardio that gets your heart pumping and stuff that's better? Or, like, what type of exercise help the most?
1: Yeah. Um, so all aerobic exercise. Is great. Um, but what's most useful is when you're acquiring a new task. So it could either be, or if it's cognitively demanding. So it could either be if you're learning a new exercise, right? So if you're new to running, like very new, right? You have to know how to uh, watch out for stuff on the sidewalk. Like let's say if you're running out on the sidewalk. Um, and it's very cognitive. De- Cognitively demanding at first because you have to pay attention to your surroundings, right? If you're learning boxing, if you're learning ballet, these are exercises that demand your attention, right? And you have to be thinking and processing things as you do it. Those tend to be a lot better for your brain than things like stationary cycling or running on a an elliptical, is that what it's
0: called? Yeah, the um the little machine. Yeah. So if you run outside, it's a lot, it's healthier for your brain, I guess, because you're more aware and you're using your brain more while you run than if you were just running on the machine.
1: Right. And then obviously, I mean, after a while, your brain then I guess maybe like adjusts to it and it becomes more automatic. Right. Like you don't really think about once you're an avid runner, you don't really experience, um, or you don't really think about having to look out for stuff because it's just really automatic. But if you, you're you a runner and then you take on boxing um, and boxing in itself, even if you're doing it for a long time, it's very cognitively demanding because you're constantly having to watch your partner. You're constantly having to watch where their arm is at, where their leg is at, where are you are gonna hit them next? How are you gonna defend yourself? Um, so exercises like that would do so exercises that more.
0: basically work your brain the most and needs your attention to help the most with building right. better receptors and stuff.
1: Yeah. So the intensity, the difficulty, and the complexity of exercises all play a role in in the neuroplasticity that that we see. So,
0: let's say like soccer is pretty demanding as well because you have to like look out for your your opponent, who to pass yeah. it to, how to shoot it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about that. So I guess yeah, so exercising isn't only good for your body, but it's good for your your brain.
1: It's great for your brain. Um, it serves as a neuroprotect protectant. So people who exercise regularly um, have a decreased risk of developing Parkinson's or developing Alzheimer's. Um, and that also goes with having a healthy diet and uh, a healthier lifestyle, right? But that's that's part of it, is that it protects your neurons, but it also has a neuro restorative effects, uh, such as in the case of people with Parkinson's and other neurological disorders. So um, exercise is great. And I think as of now, the WHO is recommending that people get at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise every day. Um, or at least, I'm gonna say like maybe five days out of the week. And it's also better to try to exercise where there's clean air um, because air pollutants have been found to diminish some of the benefits. So if it's smoggy, like here in LA, we always have, we constantly have like, you know, very crappy days where the air quality is not that great. It might be a better idea for that day to do some exercise indoors. Rather than being outside and breathing in all those pollutants.
0: Interesting. So, the better the air, I guess everything just plays a role. You know, the air, the type of exercise. That's really cool. Wow. Okay. Um, Shai, are you there? Yeah. I don't think Shai's there. Can Can you not hear me? me? Oh, there you go. I even, we'll just edit that out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about moving on to sleep and I know this is more your field shy. Um so in teenage brains, I guess teenagers, how much sleep do teenagers need compared to like adult brains? Adults.
2: Oh, well, it's pretty similar. I think the recommendations around eight to nine hours for teenagers for adults it's seven to eight hours Uh, so pretty much eight hours would be the sweet spot Um,
0: because I've heard that um as you get older that you need less sleep
2: is that true within an hour of that so maybe you can be more on the seven hour side
0: (laughs) why is that that um you kind of start to need a little bit less sleep not that much I guess but
2: so when you're aging in general, I mean, your body's deteriorating, right? So when you're 50 plus, at that point, your sleep staging, which I guess we can get into later, uh, starts to alter where you're more in light sleep than deeper types of sleep. So you're not getting the restorative sleep that you would when you're much younger and you probably wake up because you have urinary issues and you have to go to the bathroom Um, because you're not getting your REM sleep, you're also potentially having more cognitive decline uh, throughout older life. And all these disturbances uh, throughout your sleep can just make you not be able to uh, function with or be able to sleep for, you know, the typical eight to nine hours. And your circadian rhythm also changes, so... Your body naturally feels pressure to wake up earlier um, but also to go to sleep earlier
0: so i guess it isn't that you need less sleep it's just that your body starts to like wake you up and you have to adjust to that
2: yeah if anything your sleep cycle is shifting so you know your parents or especially your grandparents might be going to bed at like 8 or 9 p.m Um, yeah then they'll wake up at like 5 a.m so Well, teenagers would go to bed around 1 or 2 a.m. and then wake up at like 10 p.m. or 10 a.m.
0: So when you, I guess you could explain like the lack of sleep, what does that do to, is that different again for teenagers as adults or what are the differences and what are the effects of uh, lack of sleep?
2: So sleep deprivation is going to be bad for anyone, no matter your age. Um, I would say the earlier you deal with sleep deprivation. So if teenagers are chronically sleep deprived and then especially if as an adult, you stay chronically sleep deprived, you're pretty much paving your way towards every kind of issue you can think of when you're older. Um, Alzheimer's has been linked to poor sleep and sleep deprivation. Diabetes is linked to sleep deprivation, heart disease, um, you know, you're more likely to have exercise injuries because your muscles aren't recovering properly. Um, For men, your testicles will shrink. Uh, Testosterone levels will completely drop off and you can be pretty much 10 years older in terms of your testosterone levels. Um,
0: And this is like, what do you what do you classify as like lack of sleep? Like how many hours or like just not getting your seven hours would be considered sleep deprivation or is it like sleeping uh, two three hours?
2: Two to three hours is definitely sleep deprivation. That's you know you're approaching like almost deadly territory if that's a chronic uh, situation. Uh, six to seven hours, you know, occasionally. I'm sure that's something your body can handle recovering at least over the long term. But, you know, if you're sleeping six to seven hours consistently, then that is definitely considered sleep deprivation. Um, And your body will be worse off than someone who's sleeping seven to eight hours.
0: And if you sleep more than the recommended seven to eight, is that also bad?
2: Yeah. So... if you're on the two to three hour spectrum, that's horrible. But also if you're on the you know, 10 to 12 hour spectrum, that could also be bad. Uh, typically people with depression will sleep for that long. Um, some kind of chemical imbalance can be causing you to sleep that long. Um, there's definitely something usually going on. There could be uh, you know healthy people that do sleep that long and there are healthy people that do sleep less than five hours but I think they make up genetically 1% of the population or less. Um, So when people say, you know, I can handle sleeping five hours or less, uh, most likely they can't because they don't have the proper genetic mutations to allow that.
0: Well, So there's kind of two things that I want to get into. I remember, I guess first we'll start with what exactly goes on while you sleep, like in your brain, what's exactly going on?
2: Uh, so I guess all the way at like a molecular level, you have um, proteins and cells that are called circadian oscillators and they're self-sustaining and they're independent of you know other cells in the body. Um, in other words, when you're doing a repetitive behavior in terms of uh, what cells do, like transcription and translation of RNA and DNA. Um, that's called diurnal. But because the cells are doing this consistently every day for the entire lifespan, uh, that's called circadian. And we have these circadian oscillators. And that means they're pretty much on and off at different parts of the day. And our day makes up about 24 hours in terms of the intrinsic properties of the cells. and. Typically, if you'll put someone, you know, in a completely dark room for a few days and you just monitor if their sleep cycle changes, they'll still sleep about uh, eight hours or so and they'll still have circadian oscillations in a 24 to 25 hour time period. So the cells are naturally uh, built this way.
0: That's just because of the millions of years of us sleeping like at night and then waking up in the day I guess her body just got built yeah to that definitely. rhythm
2: yeah pretty much and you can also think you know plants as well we, we share some kind of similarities in terms of cells and they need the sun you know to produce their energy and then at night uh, they need to be able to store that energy but also not die from fasting so evolutionarily speaking this does revolve around light, which actually was my next point. So there's a arousal and major control center of the brain called the hypothalamus. And in this region, you have what's called a superchismatic nucleus um, and super or supra because it's sitting on top of the chiasmatic uh, or optic chiasm. And that's where your retina nerves are crossing in the brain. So each eyeball you know, has a retina nerve or an optic nerve, and that's running from, for example, your right eye to the middle of your brain where the optic chiasm is, and then it crosses. So the right goes to the left and the left goes to the right. And on this, you have that suprachiasmatic nucleus, which synchronizes all of these circadian oscillating cells in your body. And because it gets information from the optic nerve, it can pretty much estimate when and when uh, light is coming into the eyes. So evolutionarily speaking, uh, it would say, okay, sunlight's getting low. Time to get some sleep pressure, uh, time to you know start getting ready for bed. Um, but one thing that we're kind of completely screwing with our biology is when we're on our phones now or iPad or whatever at night, we're just having artificial light in the room your suprachiasmatic nucleus is kind of getting a little bit confused in some sense and thinking "Mm, maybe it's not nighttime yet so i shouldn't get tired
0: so now we're kind of messing up our our whole i guess biology that we've built up over thousands and millions of years now i guess night is like when we turn off our phones and we decide to go to sleep that's when it's fully dark but even let's say like your house light would that also affect it, like your your system?
2: Yeah, pretty much any kind of light um, is in some way affecting your day from regulating sleep. Um, which is why at least your phone and computer companies are starting to realize, okay, we should put these blue light filters um, and have these night mode lights so that we can regulate our sleep better.
0: What is What's the difference between like blue light and regular waves of light?
2: Uh, just the wavelength of the light itself and how your brain is able to interpret it.
0: So does it take blue light as like the the sky and then it thinks it's daylight?
2: I know, I think just uh, the wavelength is why they call it blue light, but um, it would actually, the blue light filter would be, turning it, or actually I'm not sure. Either way, I know uh, the light is still bad. It's just dampening the effect of light entering your brain.
0: How do you think our our bodies are going to adjust to that over the course of a couple of generations? Do you think our body has to adapt to us, like just blasting light at our faces all the day?
2: Uh, well, I don't know if a couple of generations would be enough but there's a lot of technological invas- advancements with sleep and that could lead to completely altering how we sleep and maybe we won't need to rely on our brain as much and you know, we can have some kind of device that is able to help us fall asleep much faster.
0: Yeah, that kind of takes me to the next point I was going to ask you. I remember when you were doing a presentation on sleep, you talked about like sleeping pills and stuff and i wanted to i wanted you to maybe touch on that on like the effects of sleeping pills because you said that they weren't good they're not they're not they're not helpful for your sleep schedule and stuff
2: yeah so any kind of sleeping pill that's like a I don't know, nyquil or um, that other famous over-the-counter medication um uh, is pretty much putting you into sedation which is not sleep it's almost like a similar to a coma state Um, and it's extremely carcinogen or carcinogenic and i think just taking it once a year increases your risk of cancer significantly compared to someone who's not taking any sleep aids Um, for people taking it four to five times a year which is really not that much Uh, your risk of cancer is huge uh i think it's over 10 percent when you're taking sleep aids like that
0: so there's people that like have to take these to sleep and is that increasing like their chance of cancer by a lot
2: most likely but also why are they having to take it
0: is is it different if let's say you have um what's that disease called? You can't sleep. Does the doctor prescribe something different? Yeah.
2: Well, insomnia can be both mental and physical. It depends on what's causing the insomnia because you can have PTSD from some kind of traumatic event and that can result in insomnia. You can just be living an unhealthy lifestyle and that can be insomnia. Um, Or there could be some kind of chemical, electrical imbalances going on that result in insomnia, but I don't think doctors would prescribe NyQuil. I'm not sure what they prescribe for that. I do know that doctors in med school, at least up until recently, only receive like two to four hours of um, sleep-related training. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the doctor never really talks about sleep schedules
0: even though it's such an, even though it's such an important part of our of our lives and of our bodies
2: yeah it seems to be changing in terms of how the medical field is acknowledging okay sleep is pretty much the foundation of our health
0: i don't know if you've seen this on instagram but it's like they keep promoting these a lot it's like these little mel- melanin no melatonin 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 yeah these little like vape pens and that's the first thing i thought about when you said that it's like a tranquilizer
2: so melatonin is different than nyquil melatonin is like a naturally produced brain chemical and you can pretty much take as much melatonin i think as you want um it's mostly a placebo it almost never actually does anything um you know if it works for you great uh as far as I know, I haven't seen any harm in taking melatonin, um, but there's also no benefits compared to, you know, control samples who take a placebo.
0: So in reality, it's not.
2: They're just not vaping, really like a, yeah, for the sake of vaping.
0: <laughs> oh, so they're just promoting it like as a placebo, and then, I mean, I've, I've heard the placebo is like super strong. Like, it can really affect you a lot like if you think you're sick or if you are sick and you think you take medicine yeah which feel is why if, better.
2: if melatonin works for you and you're taking melatonin pills before bed and then you're getting good night's sleep then whatever that's good
1: uh, it's so yeah. i think there was a study too that tried to compare different melatonin supplements that are offered and i think the difference in terms of how much sleep it added to a person's nightly sleep. I think it was like two minutes or something really insignificant like that.
2: Yeah, I think the only thing that's useful uh, but this could also be a placebo is the amount of time it takes you to actually fall asleep.
0: So it, it just shortens the amount of time it takes you to yeah. go to sleep? Which
2: is also one of the beneficial effects of cannabis but at the same time you can get addicted to using cannabis to fall asleep so that you know if you're smoking or whatever two to three days a week then the dates or the nights that you're not using cannabis you might have a difficult time falling asleep
0: so i guess the best way to go to sleep or to find to adjust your sleep schedule is maybe turn off the devices an hour before you go to sleep maybe read a book or something and just turn off the lights earlier than usual
2: yeah and you can google sleep hygiene and it'll give you a bunch of tips Um, you know you want to have consistent bed schedules you want to have your bed use only for sleep not for eating or watching tv or something Um, your body likes to make associations Um, reading before bed is good no you know heavy light or uh, tv or tablets um, and also, when you wake up in the middle of the night, if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't look at your phone. Like, once you start looking at your phone, you're pretty much waking your brain up.
1: Also, um, regular exercise helps a lot in sleep. But also, don't exercise within, like, two hours of trying to go to sleep because okay. your heart rate will be increased and you'll have, you'll have a hard time falling asleep. It'll be really hot. <laughs> um But sleep is also very important. I mean, sorry, exercise is very important for getting good sleep.
0: And also, Shai, you mentioned coffee is super bad for your your sleep schedule. Is it the same thing that just gets your heart beating?
2: If you're having caffeine, I don't know, pretty much afternoon or later, you're messing with your body's natural uh, sleep pressure. So if you remember, probably biology, you learn about ATP and how your body uses that for energy. And every time you're breaking down ATP, you have adenosine left over. And adenosine uh, is what makes us feel tired. It's called sleep pressure because it's accumulating throughout the day. So you start the day assuming you got a good night's sleep with a low level of adenosine in your brain. Uh, specifically in these frontal regions that Lisa was talking about. And then throughout the day, adenosine builds up to the point where at night you feel like, okay, I'm tired, low energy. I need to go to sleep. And when you're drinking caffeine, the caffeine uh, blocks the adenosine receptors in the brain and makes it difficult for you to feel that sleep pressure. So it lets you stay awake um, but eventually your brain realizes, you know, something's stopping the adenosine from getting through. Let's build more adenosine receptors. And now you need more caffeine to block those adenosine receptors, which is why you build a tolerance to coffee or sodas or whatever your caffeine source is. And when you're trying to get off caffeine, or if you just like abruptly quit for one day, you might feel migraines or, um, that like oh i'm crashing early in the day feeling because now your body has all this extra adenosine receptors to uh, take up the adenosine leftover
0: that's, that's kind of like building up a dependency on the coffee
2: yeah i think caffeine is rated the number one drug
0: oh i thought is sugar kind of the same effect
2: Yeah, sugar is a similar effect. I think caffeine is just more widely used.
0: Wow, interesting. And then
2: alcohol completely destroys your sleep, um, especially your REM sleep. So for severe alcoholics, you can have such little REM sleep that you'll go into a delirium state and you'll literally have hallucinations during the day because your brain thinks it's in REM sleep
0: what really wow so you think it's asleep while
2: yeah it's, just... it's called delirium but I think is that
0: you said drinkers. that's heavy drinkers
2: yeah that's usually for alcoholics
0: wow that's super cool well that pretty much wraps up all my questions thank you guys so much for joining me today and answering all these questions that we've had um Thank you guys so much for listening to BOFA Talks. Uh, Thank you, Shai and Insa, again. And uh, I'll see you guys another time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks.